Good morning, gentlemen, unless, of course, you are watching this video in the afternoon or the evening, in which case I would say good afternoon and good evening. Welcome to the Men's Fellowship Breakfast. And certainly for the past several weeks, we have been providing teaching via video to each of you. And that is a challenge. That is an adjustment. And that is in many ways sad because I would much rather see your faces and interact with you because I certainly miss you. I miss the food, sure, but I miss you all and the genuine fellowship that we have together as we meet. And so this time in our, in our world has forced us to adjust, but I'm grateful that we can still provide resources and that we can still be in communication with each other virtually. And hopefully you are doing that as you meet one another um, over the internet, whether it's through FaceTime or Zoom or WebEx or other tools that are available to us, hopefully you are staying connected. I wanted to let you know that we did actually have um, some news coming from our chapel family. Uh, just this past Wednesday, a member of our chapel family named Roger Chain passed away from the COVID-19 illness. And that's very sad for our chapel family and obviously for our community. So I encourage you to pray for his wife, Phyllis, and pray for his family. But it is a reminder to us of the reality of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And maybe as these past several weeks have gone on, you have started to ask yourself, as I have from time to time, do we have hope? Can we have hope? in the midst of these difficult times. And this past Sunday, we celebrated Easter Sunday, which is the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He was crucified on Good Friday, raised on Easter Sunday. And Easter Sunday reminds us that we indeed have hope. We indeed always have the possibility of knowing Jesus Christ. And then once we have trusted in Jesus Christ, we have the guarantee of eternal life. And so I am thankful for that guarantee, thankful for that promise, because these times have been difficult. And so as I prepare to teach to us from God's Word, which is a humbling privilege, I would like to pray for us, and uh, I would encourage you to join me now in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for uh, the fact that your Son, Jesus, is alive, and we thank you that that means we have all hope, that the gospel really is good news. And as we uh, think about um, our lost, um, our loss here at the chapel with Roger, we think about his now widow, Phyllis. We pray for your comfort for her and the family and strength. Uh, we pray that as we are confronted with the reality of our own mortality, that we would recognize because of the resurrected Christ that we have hope that we can look to you, that you constantly make yourself available to us. And you invite us each day to come before you in humility and say, Lord, we need you. Life is, Life is hard. <laughs> I'm growing weary of this. Um, but you strengthen us. You provide us all that we need. So please provide us what we need right now, which is insight into your word so that we might indeed uh, be grown and we might be sanctified as men who want to follow Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. 
Well, uh, we continue in the Gospel of Mark today, and um, I am providing some slides. I, I love slides, and those slides are available on the Men's Breakfast website as well. But as we have been studying through the Gospel of Mark, this is the 26th installment of our lesson series in the Gospel of Mark. We have been learning from the structure and the message of Mark that Mark shows us how to serve and suffer like our Savior. I would love for you to say that with me again, because you may be tired of hearing it, but one day, guys, one day you are going to thank me. Um, Let's say it together. The Gospel of Mark shows us how to serve and suffer like our Savior. That is Jesus Christ. And the first 11 chapters show us how Jesus came to serve. And now the last four chapters where we find ourselves in, uh, in today, Jesus came to suffer as we look at his passion. And uh, the key verse, as many have identified, is Mark 10, 45. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as we come to this 26th installment of our series in the Gospel of Mark, we are going to be finishing out Mark chapter 13. And the lesson title for today is, Jesus is coming, look busy. And this will be uh, an examination of Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 37. And I I got the title for today's lesson, Jesus is coming, look busy, from a friend in college. His name is Greg. He now lives in Virginia Beach. And when we were living together at UVA, uh, Greg, he's a, a very good guitar player. He volunteers at his church um, in the worship ministry. And on his guitar case one day, I noticed a bumper sticker that said, Jesus is coming, look busy. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, that, it's kind of intriguing. I'm, I want to figure out what is that trying to say. And at the time, I had a few problems with it. I said, well, you don't just want to look busy, Greg. You actually want to uh, to genuinely be doing what the Lord calls you to do. And he kind of said, yeah, 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 Mr. Legalist, just get the point. Uh, Jesus is coming. And as we examine today the passage from Mark 13, we will see some very important truths that Jesus teaches about. But for the context of where we are, um, I believe as we look at the scriptures, we're still on Tuesday, the Tuesday before Good Friday, before Easter Sunday. Tuesday and Jesus, um, if you remember, as we've looking at, we're looking at the life of Jesus, Mark takes the first uh, 10 chapters of his gospel to go quickly through three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And then, starting in chapter 11, all the way through the end, we have six chapters where the action slows way down. And we have a full focus on the Passion Week of Jesus from Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday. And that's significant because Mark really wants us to focus in and not uh, not that he was rushing through the previous material, but as he's writing to Christians in the first century who are experiencing persecution, he wants them to really know and understand the suffering of Jesus Christ. So that's why he takes more extensive time to walk through. And Just so you know, on the slides, you'll see a map. This action that we're going to be reading from today is from a larger discussion that Jesus is having with his disciples and with others who happen to be around him from Mark chapter 13 that Dale talked about two weeks ago. 
And this is the longest sermon, lecture, lesson that Jesus has in the Gospel of Mark. And it's called, in other circles, the Olivet Discourse. And it's called the Olivet Discourse because we have Jesus on the Mount of Olives, which is to the east of Jerusalem, the east of the temple, overlooking the the, the Kidron Valley, looking to the west, to the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus, um, as Dale taught us two weeks ago, says that the temple is going to be brought down. Every stone is going to be overturned. And Jesus' disciples ask him, when is this going to happen? Tell us, what are the signs? Jesus, before really going into the depth of that teaching, then moves to the Mount of Olives, across to the east, looking back towards the temple, it says, he sat down, as we read in Mark 13, uh, verse 3, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and John and Uh, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will the sign be when all these things are about to be accomplished? So Jesus goes into this extensive teaching, starting with when the temple is going to be destroyed, but he expands that teaching into some longer-term prophetic teachings about what's going to happen in God's kingdom work. And that is the Olivet Discourse. You see a parallel passage in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And so as he sits on the Mount of Olives, surrounded by olive trees, which which will become uh, significant, olive trees and and fig trees, um, Jesus begins to talk about great persecution. He begins to talk about uh, an abomination of desolation. He talks about great tribulation. And I appreciate Dale's humility two weeks ago when he said that a lot of the interpretation of the timing and the specifics of what Jesus is talking about here is greatly debated between great men and women of God who love Jesus Christ fully but have different perspectives. And so we do well um, to understand that we can have a position, and I have a position of what this means, but to hold it somewhat loosely and never hold it too tightly and forsake the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is certainly telling his disciples, as Dale pointed out last week, that Jesus prepared his disciples for unimaginable tribulation by focusing them on his mission more than their on their survival. And Dale inc- encouraged us to think about a robust theology of suffering that we, we don't often embrace in the Western church many way, in many ways because we don't have to, because we can exercise our faith with great freedom But around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ understand suffering in a very different light than we do today. And his admonition was that his followers would be faithful. Now, as I think about what what we're going to get to in just a moment, um, it's significant to know that when we think about what Mark is going to teach us about, specifically about the return of Jesus Christ, starting in verse 24 of chapter 13, We need to know that this is a message of great hope and encouragement. Far too often, I think, when we talk about the return of Christ, the end times, we think about a lot of of fearful images. And for sure, the Bible is full of fearful and dreaded language when we read about what will happen in the future upon the time of the return of Christ to earth. But 
Really, in the end, this should be a message of great hope to us in Christ, those of us who have trusted Christ, because he is returning. And we have to remember that our hope is not in a moment that is the moment of his return, but our hope is in the man himself who is returning, Jesus the Savior. So let's remember, remember that as we go through. I also want to know that I want us to know that this is supposed to be great encouragement, and I'm reminded of Romans 4, 15, 4, which says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So the teaching of Jesus here, while on one level could be unsettling, is really supposed to be a message of great encouragement. Mark wanted his original readers to know that, And Jesus wanted his original listeners to know that. And both Jesus and Mark, through the Holy Spirit, want us as readers and listeners today to know that as well. So let's, uh, just thinking through the structure of what we'll be looking at today, really we'll have three, three segments to our lesson. One is Jesus is coming back. Two is you'll know he's close. And three, but you won't know when. And I'll explain some of that tension in just a little bit. So we'll start with Jesus is coming back, and I'll read from Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 27. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So Jesus has just talked about uh, a lot of tribulation, a lot of unsettling language that precedes this coming of the Son of Man. And his constant message to his disciples is, be on guard, be aware, do not let anyone deceive you. But then he says this this moment in time will happen after this great tribulation where uh, he uses this incredible language from nature, this natural language that speaks of a deeper supernatural reality as he talks about his second coming. Now, in the history of the church and the history of theology, we know that uh, the first coming of Jesus, that happened when he was born when he was incarnated, the first advent. His second advent, or his second coming, is known in church history as the parousia, or parousia, depending on how you pronounce it. I wasn't alive back then, so I don't know exactly how it was pronounced. No one does, but uh, parousia is the way I pronounce it. And this is a word for, for coming or arrival, and it talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I can remember when I took a New Testament course at the University of Virginia, and we had our final exam, and the question was, which Greek word refers to the return of Christ or the second coming of Christ? And I I marked the wrong answer. I was so frustrated with myself. But since then, I learned from my mistakes. I will never forget that the parousia or parousia refers to the second coming of Christ. And uh, really, this language is preparing Jesus' readers for this great moment in, in their future, which will happen when Christ returns. And Jesus has really been leading his readers up until this point for this great moment. This is going to happen. He talks about the tribulation and the persecution and the difficulty. 
But that's all preceding this great moment in the future when he will come again. Again, a message of hope. In fact, we see if, um, if you look at Revelation chapters 6 through 19, which uh, many, including me, not everybody, but this is the, the perspective I take and the view I take, that Revelation chapters 6 through 19 expand upon what Jesus is teaching about here in the Olivet Discourse. The great climactic moment of that passage ends in Revelation 19 when Jesus Christ, the great and mighty victorious warrior riding on a horse, on his thigh is, uh, is a sash, essentially, upon which it is written, King, King of kings and Lord of lords. He comes in mighty judgment and ultimate victory. And this is this great moment that Jesus is talking about that will happen. Now, interestingly, um, we know that there is language throughout the New and the Old Testaments which mirrors what Jesus is talking about with these natural phenomenon which speak of a supernatural happening about the stars, they don't they fall, and the moon and the sun don't give light. If you read in the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, these words, but the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord referring to his arrival and his judgment uh, upon the earth at his second coming, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter here is talking about this great event that will happen when Jesus returns as well. And what we need to understand, guys, is that throughout the history of the church, this has been one of the core doctrines that's been taught and one of the core essential teachings of our faith today. In fact, I'm reminded of the words of the Nicene Creed, when I, which I recited as a, as a younger child and, and still from time to time will revisit that to be reminded of, of the essentials of my faith. Um, but one of the essential parts of that creed is that we believe in the Son of God, and this is what we believe, that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Some translations say the quick and the dead, and that is language taken right from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, he will come again in glory to judge the quick and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. So this is an essential teaching that Jesus is highlighting for his listeners in Mark chapter 13 that the rest of Scripture also refers to. Now, it's no surprise that Mark would be referring to Old Testament language as well. And in his description of the sun and the moon not, not giving off light and the stars falling, again, natural descriptions of a supernatural event. Um, if we read in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark for its rising, for at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. You see similar language used in Isaiah 34, 10. But the Old Testament that Mark is drawing from has some very important words to say about this event, about this coming of the Son of Man. Because we read in verse 26 of Mark 13, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Look at that verse. If you have your Bibles, highlight that verse. That's an important verse. All the verses in the Bible are, of course, important. But this verse is important because of its direct connection to another verse from the Old Testament. The book of Daniel, chapter 7, 
verse 13, and then continuing into verse 14, reads, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom, one, that shall not be destroyed. I've recently been doing some um, a historical Bible study reading plan, and I was recently in the book of Daniel. And I was amazed to be reminded of just how powerful the kingdom of God is and the future of God's kingdom will be. And when we read in the beginning of Daniel 7.13, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. That is directly being referenced by Jesus here in Mark chapter 13, verse 26. And so what we find is that the son of man in ancient times in Israel developed into um, the idea of the son of man. And you see it throughout a lot of the Old Testament. The book of Ezekiel constantly has that language referring mostly to Ezekiel himself as the son of man but not the same ultimate son of man that the Old Testament looked to. But uh, the Old Testament uh, viewed the son of man as this great deliverer, this great, uh, eventually this great Messiah. And as the Jewish theology developed to the time of Jesus, we see that by the time Jesus was around, son of man was a term that was used in conjunction with and connection with this Messiah, this great deliverer, this great hoped-for king. The term Son of Man itself is used 81 times throughout the Gospels and 41, or I should say 14 times in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus used the Son of Man as one of his favorite, his favorite titles for himself. Not because he thought he was great, but because it was true. He is the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. And what he wanted to make the connection for with his readers and his listeners is that he is this hoped-for Son of Man, and he is the hoped-for Messiah. And we know that when he came, as he came in his first coming to serve and suffer, he is coming in his second coming to reign in glory. And that is why it is a message of great hope. And we read here in Mark 13 that when Jesus comes, he's going to send out the angels and the angels are going to call in all of the elect from the different corners of the earth and even the different corners of heaven. And I take this to mean that all those who have faithfully believed in Jesus and faithfully looked towards Jesus as their hope will be brought together and all of the redeemed will be together in this great kingdom that he will rule. So this is great, great message of hope. Jesus is coming back. But our second section tells us something interesting. It tells us we'll know he's close. We'll know he's close. And this is verses 28 through 31. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things take place, you will know that he is near at the very gates Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will, will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So essentially what we get here, and 
a few weeks back, you guys might not remember this. I got pretty excited. Uh, we had some lessons on the fig tree. We had fig tree lesson one, where Jesus was uh, cursed the fig tree, was looking for fruit. It didn't have it. And then we had uh, fig tree lesson number two, where um, we find that those leaves indeed had withered. And uh, Jesus was intending this to be a commentary on the spiritual lack of fruit in the nation of Israel and the religious leadership. But here, I, I told you back then, I said there's going to be a third appearance of the fig tree. And, and here it is. Jesus uses the fig tree not necessarily directly looking at one, although on the Mount of Olives, which could have easily been surrounded by fig trees, he could have motioned to one of the fig trees and said, when you see that its branch is tender, you know summer is near. In the same way, he's saying, when you see these signs that I'm talking about, you know that my return is near. And he says in verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. The word there for lesson is the same word for parable. As Jesus is saying, this is to be an illustration. Now, uh, a professor that I had in seminary has put together some wonderful study notes on the Bible. And he writes this about Jesus' use of the fig tree. Said Jesus had previously used a fig tree to illustrate the generation of Israelites that failed to believe in him at his first advent. Here he used it to illustrate the fact that perceptive people can anticipate coming events by the signs that precede those events. So, in um, so these signs will show those who are paying attention that Jesus is close. Now, one of the more challenging verses that we experience as we come into this passage is. Verse 30, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, what does that mean? That the disciples and those listening to Jesus will not die before these things take place? If so, then Jesus is incorrect because they died and the Son of Man had not returned yet. So, what does this mean? What does this generation mean? A few understandings of this generation. Could some take it to mean the Jewish race will not pass away? I don't take that view. I think that's a little bit limiting um, and not, not contextually right with what Jesus is saying. Some say the whole human race, this generation refers to the whole human race. It's, it's possible that that's what Jesus means. Um, it could also mean that Jesus is saying those who see the start of these signs will not pass away because they will happen in such rapid succession, which is also a possibility. And then Jesus could simply be saying that uh, disciples who are following me at this time will also not pass away before these things take place and come into existence. Um, either way, we know that these events are still future and that when those events do happen, they will happen in such a way that lead us to understand Jesus is returning and returning soon. Um, interestingly, the word pass away is used three times. Um, this generation will not pass away. And then verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Uh, Jesus is firm in his language that heaven and earth and creation is in some way temporary. It will be remade and refashioned in the age to come, but Jesus' promise is sure and secure. He is promising, indeed, that he will come. Um, I think also of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
God's word is eternal. So we know that he's coming back. We also know that we'll know he, when he's close. The third portion and final portion of our teaching for today is strange, and that's that we won't know when. So Jesus has just said, you'll know it's close when you see these signs. But now read what he says in verse 32 through 37. But concerning the day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So Jesus has just said, you'll know when my coming is, my coming again is close, but you're not actually going to know when it happens. And I think that's an important point for us to know because um, far too often, I think we've encountered in history many individuals, um, I, I want to use kind words here, just people with misguided understandings of the Bible and of reality that have attempted to predict when Jesus will come again. I don't have to tell you all that the, uh, the level of the failure for that prediction, the failure rate for their predictions is 100%. Not one of those individuals who has promised that Jesus is coming at a certain date and that the end of the world is happening at that time has ever been correct. I think one of the more recent um, hysterias was in leading up to the, the date of the year of 2012. It, it connected to the Mayan calendar and the Mayan calendar coming to an end. And um, that obviously was not, uh, that was not correct. But more specifically, people have tried to predict the actual coming of Christ and they've been wrong. I think that maybe they should have just gone to the scriptures because when I read there, no one knows, not even the angels, not even the son, but only the father. I say, well, I, I don't think it's my place or anyone else's place to try to predict when this will happen. So um, what intrigues me about this passage is how can the son not know his own coming again, but the father does? And as theologians have tried to resolve that tension, um, the best I can explain is that even in his humanity, even though I do believe that Jesus knew, when I say knew all things, in this case, we find that the Father, for reasons that only he knows, deemed it best that not even the Son, in his limited humanity, would know. Even though he's, he's fully God and he's fully man, he still was limited in understanding when he would be coming again. And, and even, um, this was of great interest to Jesus' followers. Even after his resurrection, we find that his followers were very interested in when he was going to come again. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, we read, So when they had come together, 
again, this is after his resurrection, before he is, right before he ascends to, the, to be with the Father in heaven. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So even here, Jesus defers to the Father's authority and says, this is not for you to be worried about. What he goes on to say is, you, however, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Judea, in all in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So Jesus says, my kingdom work is to be your focus, not the return of the king, so to speak. And our temptation is really to want to know when Jesus is coming back. Uh, Certainly as we experience a pandemic like this that feels almost apocalyptic to us, feels almost like end of the world to us, we want to see signs that say Jesus is coming back soon. And the truth is, no one knows. But we know we're one day closer to his return than we were yesterday. And we also know that it is to be a great hope and expectation that we have. So the signs have really been around us for almost 2,000 years now. And the key is not to look so much for the signs that we fail to look and expect the Savior. Because we hope not in the moment of his return, but in the man himself, Jesus Christ. So don't look so much to the signs that you forget to be expectant for the Savior. Now, Jesus uses some very interesting language. He, uh, he, he warns his, his listeners, be on guard. And that's a phrase that's repeated four times throughout the entire chapter of Mark 13. Um, but we, we need to understand that he is coming and that we are to be expecting and ready for his coming. Mark uses an interesting illustration of a master who leaves a house and he tells his doorkeeper to be ready because the doorkeeper, who was um, really the, the one who managed the affairs, protected the possessions, made sure that the master's house was in order when he would return, the doorkeeper was to stay awake. And Jesus uses some interesting language. In verse 34, he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. And then verse 35, therefore, stay awake. And then a third time in verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, the the word there in the Greek is gregoreo. And if your name is Gregory, or Greg for short, your name means awake or alert. Now, maybe you knew that, maybe you didn't. Um, But Jesus says, essentially, we all need to be Gregory's. We all need to be awake. We need to be aware, like the doorkeeper. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is, don't be caught with your spiritual pants down when I come back. Be ready. Be, um, Be diligent. Be devoted. Be disciplined. Be ready. We find uh, some interesting language in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we were in this very chapter about a year ago this time as we study that book together. As Paul writes, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, but for you, but, uh, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, it will happen when you don't expect it. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day, and we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, 
but let us keep awake. That's the gregoreo, same word in Mark 13. Let us keep awake and be sober. And then finally, Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. That's our same word. Keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be exposed. Again, Jesus is saying, don't get caught with your spiritual pants down. When I come back, um, I want you to be ready. And so I think the, the admonition here is, um, is don't predict, but be prepared for the return of Christ. Don't predict it because no one knows, but be prepared for his return. I think about it like uh, an athlete who is on the sidelines who doesn't know when the coach is going to call their number to get into the lineup. But if that athlete's shoes are untied, if their chin strap isn't strapped on, if their, if their jersey isn't tucked in, they're not ready. So the coach might have to say, all right, you're not ready, next man up. And that's the way that we need to be prepared. We need to make sure that we are at all times awake and aware for the return of Christ. How do we do it? We do it by being devoted, by loving God and loving others. Just the great commandment to love God and to love one another. We are prepared by how we are diligent, to be diligent in his word and his prayer. And we're also prepared by how we are dedicating ourselves to God's kingdom work and his mission, which we can still do even in this difficult season where we are limited in where we can go and who we can see, we can still be dedicated to sharing the hope we have in the return of Christ. So the key is to be watchful and to be awake as we wait. So we've talked about how Jesus is coming back. We've talked about how we'll know he's close. And we've talked about how we won't know when. And I think the message really is that Jesus is coming. Look busy. But see, see it in a different light. Don't predict, but be prepared for the return of Christ. And remember, guys, this is a message of great hope. And we need a message of great hope. I know I need this message of great hope. It's encouraging me, even as I talk it out, uh, to, um, to a video camera that will one, at one point be shared with the rest of you. I'm just saying thank you, God, for the message of hope that we have. And we have to be reminded that Mark's gospel does indeed show us how to serve and suffer like our Savior, indeed our Savior, who is coming again in glory. So as we come together next week, just know that we will be looking at Mark chapter 14. And I hope you have a wonderful weekend in, in light of the circumstances with the message of hope of knowing that Jesus is coming back. Thanks and God bless.